Welcome to Winston and Sharon's Let's Talk Lending Podcast. My name is Andy Hutchinson. I'm a finance partner in our Chicago office, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Rachel Gray, a finance partner in our New York office. Rachel has insights into both the borrower and lender sides of complex leveraged finance transactions, and we're particularly interested in, in hearing her perspective on today's topic, which is LIBOR replacements. So before we jump into LIBOR replacements, Rachel, it'd be great if, if you could tell us a little bit more about your, your background and your experience. Of course, I'm happy to be here. As you mentioned, I'm in the New York office. I, in the past, have represented both lenders and sponsors in varying leverage finance deals. Before joining Winston, I worked on the borrower side predominantly for large cap and middle market sponsors on all aspects of their financing transactions. And prior to that, I'm here at Winston, I'm back representing lenders as well. Again, in the middle market, large cap, all sorts of financing structures. Great. Well, we're, we're certainly excited that you're here. And I'm very excited that you're here with me today. So I have a practice that focuses primarily on representing lenders, both direct lenders or, or private credit, as well as banks in connection with mostly middle market sponsor-led acquisition financings. And I've spent the last, really the last 10 or 11 years sort of just exclusively working on those deals. And it's been interesting to see the developments in connection with the, um, the pending discontinuation of LIBOR. So maybe that's a good transition to, to talk about what we're seeing in the market today in connection with the, the transactions that we've been working on over the last five or six months. So I'll, I'll start. I, I would say, generally speaking, on the bank side, most bank lenders have preferred to include LSTA's hardwired approach to LIBOR replacement. Another sort of just generically speaking on the direct lender side, I think there's maybe more, more of a mix there. And um, I, I think it really probably depends uh, on the direct lender as, as they're not subject to the same regulatory scrutiny as, as the banks are in regards to that topic. But there's been a little bit of a, I think, push and pull between the lenders and you know the their clients, the borrowers. And Rachel, what have you seen any sort of kind of you know real pushback in, in terms of just general approaches from from the sponsors or the borrowers that you've worked with? Yeah, I mean, I think that there has been varying degrees of acceptance initially when this language started being introduced into documents, probably. I'm going to say late 2019, early 2020, the sponsors that I worked for were certainly leery of being forced to agree to this language that they didn't really know the implications of. So from their perspective at that point, it was sort of the more input that they would have into proposed changes, the better. They didn't really want anything where banks had like the agent or the required lenders had unilateral ability to just impose a new rate on them 
it varied sponsor to sponsor. The top tier guys, of course, generally have a lighter voice on these things. But as 2020 went by, and I suppose into the later half of last year, there became a wider acceptance of the ARC language. Uh, there was still a preference for the amendment approach, again, just because I think people were wary of committing to anything that, that again, they didn't fully see where the market was going to go. But I think gradually more and more, and in the early part of this year, the hardwired language was gaining traction. People were starting, particularly as it became apparent that SOFR was going to be sort of leading rate, people became more comfortable with that. But there remains a concern of the ability of lenders to unilaterally impose rates. So certainly for any of the sponsors that I had worked with, there was always a desire to retain a consultation right for the rate that was going to be selected and then any conforming changes that were going to be made to the document. Yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. And that makes sense. And, and have you seen sort of a, a push for or from sponsors to have a consultation right in connection with selecting sort of outside of this? Well, we'll stick with the hardwired approach. So outside of the the sort of SOFR, you know, hardwire, the consult right really makes more sense in connection with a scenario in which, you know, SOFR is actually not available or not widely used. And so then it's sort of the sponsor and the lenders need to kind of team up and figure out, well, what are we going to use then as, as an alternative to SOFR? Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a scenario where they would have wanted a voice because, you know, I think that a lot of the language about the prevailing rate in the market was sort of soft in their minds. And so they wanted to make sure that they also agreed that, you know, the rates that are selected are the prevailing rates or that they agree with that. So I think that would certainly be a, a point of focus. I, I definitely think that that makes sense. And I can see from their perspective, not wanting to, you know, sort of be in a position where their lender is, is kind of dictating like, Hey, here's, you know, here's this alternative rate. For whatever reason, doesn't doesn't work for the company or, or for the sponsor, or maybe a sponsor would prefer to incorporate for its own sort of administrative back office purposes a uniform alternate rate across all of its port codes, right? Yeah, I, I didn't see that as I didn't see that as much. You know, I think one of the things as well in the sponsor world is when you're told that this is the LSTA language and uh, that people bristle automatically because that is not considered to be borrower friendly. So part of the, the slowness in the adoption was just people getting comfortable with what the language actually said and that it wasn't going to be used in any sort of nefarious ways to you know, get one over on them. Yeah, so the point you just raised came up on a on a deal that I closed recently, where the sponsor in that deal raised the same issue. They said, "Well, there were two issues really. It was a multi currency facility. The sponsor, uh, I believe, is based in in London, and their view is like, guys, like I I just don't care what's in the LST language. Like that's you know, I mean, we want something that's more along the lines of, of LMA, 
and ultimately we were able to to come up with a, a common ground that I think worked for everyone that that actually incorporated elements of both LSTA and LMA in connection with that deal, but certainly sympathetic to the view that you know when a sponsor hears LSTA, the LSTA is tends to be a little bit more of a you know a lender favorable organization. Yeah, um, I think that's right. But with that being said, I, I do think that other than for, you know, consultation rights and, and, and sometimes, you know, some sort of mutual consent in terms of selecting an alternate benchmark rate, I don't tend to see a, a real heavy markup of the ARC language, whether it's the amendment approach or the hardwired approach. Yeah, no, I agree. I think sometimes I've seen or or we would have tried to get rid of any requirement that required lender input was involved. So it would just be between the agent and the sponsor just because people didn't want hold up. But besides that, no, I think you're right that people don't tend to go crazy on the markup of, of the ARC language now, the hardware language. I think it's just a lot of words too. So, you know, I'm not sure if they read it all. Yeah, it, it's definitely, <laughs> a, it can be, it's, it's dense for sure. And that reminds me, we probably should mention, so, so in connection with the transaction that has a multi-currency component, it's worth noting for folks that are, you know, thinking about that or, or have, you know, existing deals with, a, a, in particular, a, a pound sterling component, the UK finance authority, I believe it was in March released uh, a statement uh, indicating that uh, LIBOR can no longer be referenced in connection with with new deals. So if you have a credit facility that offers GBP as a, as an alternate rate uh, or an alternate currency, keep in mind that that you'll want to address the the reference rate there. It should not be uh, referencing uh, LIBOR. And th there are a number of forms and alternatives and and we could spend a, uh, we could spend another topic and, and another podcast discussing that as well, but but that's something that's you know a more recent development that's that's worth noting. Rachel, have you seen um, any sort of GBP related issues in, in any of the deals you've worked with recently? Not on the borrower side. I, I haven't really, to be honest. I mean, there's been deals now where they've just put Sonia in like from the get go, so. Yeah. That's how I've seen it Yeah. And that's what we did in, in the deal that I'm thinking about. It was pretty straightforward. Certain of the banks now I, now I know won't underwrite a deal with pounds unless it's Sonia. So yeah. At this stage. Yeah. I think that's right. I think, I think most of the banks have gotten that, that message and are, and are totally on top of it. So. Maybe transitioning a little bit, wondering how, or if you've heard anything in terms of, you know, where, where the sponsor side in particular sees the rest of the year of this year going uh, in terms of LIBOR. And I have my guess, I think it's just continuing with the same, you know, along the same path that, that we're on in terms of, you know, documenting LIBOR replacement in accordance with, with ARC language and, and then making tweaks where necessary. Uh, for example, to to address a you know a GBP component, but wondering if you've if you've heard anything or you know any any news from the street 
Yeah, no, I think that that's generally going to be the trend. Although, funny, was in receipt of an email this morning from Sponsor Council where we were, we're amending the credit agreement for something different and that credit agreement has no LIBOR fallback provisions in it currently. So we added them in Sponsor Council does not want to include them right now, which was surprising because they're going to have to go in at some point. And their argument was that potentially it would need that amendment to hardwire in an alternative LIBOR right could need all lender consent, which isn't a concern that I've heard before. So that was interesting. And I'll have to keep you posted on how that one uh, shakes out because it's to be resolved still. But I think we did see recently in one deal where they went with the amendment approach, which was the first time in a while. And we wondered if that was because, and I think you and I were speaking about it, certain of the banks, certain lenders are, are thinking about maybe using alternative, alternative rates other than SOFR. So I think one lender is looking at using Bisbee and that has maybe introduced a little bit of uncertainty again into where this is all going to shake out, although I, I still think that SOFR is the way it's going to go. But maybe there's going to be a movement back to the amendment approach for a while until that sort of settles and, and people are more sure of where the market goes on that. Um, so yeah. I think that'll be something to watch. Yeah, one large direct lender that I'm thinking about that I believe in most cases still prefers the amendment approach, I think, for that reason, because they're, I don't know that they have a, a stake in which reference rate is, is ultimately adopted, but I think they're looking to maximize flexibility and not, as you mentioned before, have to, to go back to, you know, to amend a doc, um, which for what it's worth, I agree with, I think, unless there's something unique about the voting provision in a particular agreement, I think for the most part, revising the the reference rate would would be an all affected lender vote and so i you know if you're just looking to do something simple you know rec lender easy and don't want to sort of get particularly if you have a, a larger syndicate or a larger bank group you know i could i could appreciate the um you know the the sort of not wanting to to open that that up um, and go through the, the time and expense of, of getting um, a bunch of folks to agree on on that provision. And I think that even in the absence of a, um, you know, a true sort of library replacement provision, your worst case scenario that the loans would just fall back to to base rate, right? If, if LIBOR were no longer available um, as a reference rate. Yeah, I agree. Great. Well, I think we touched on our, our talking points here, Rachel. So unless you have anything further, I'm going to thank our listeners for tuning in. Thank Rachel for joining me today. And uh, for all the folks that are listening to our Let's Talk Lending podcast, you can subscribe to this podcast via Apple iTunes or Google, or by visiting the Winston & Strong website for more insights on the latest market updates and trends in the finance practice area.